Hi, and welcome to Elevate Potential. I'm so glad that you're here. This is a podcast that is designed to help you escape patterns, embrace passion, and elevate potential. My name is Elizabeth Perry, and as a lifelong student of psychology, personal development, and human potential, as well as a transpersonal life and leadership coach, I will be your guide as together we learn from others who are on this journey. Let's dive in. So we should always take a look in that mirror and see that mask we're wearing and truly ask ourselves why, but also truly ask ourselves what will it take for us to show up the way we need to show up. Hello and welcome to Elevate Potential. Today I am so excited to be talking with Kevin Sansbury. We actually met on LinkedIn, which is actually where I meet a lot of people these days. Um, super, like super, a huge fan of that platform. But Kevin is the host of the podcast Toxic Leadership, which is the number four podcast in the nonprofit space in the US. He has gotten his PhD and his MBA. He is a world renowned HR uh, consultant. And I'm so excited to be speaking with him today, not only because of all of those accolades, but just because of the person that Kevin is. When we first met, it was just such a catalyzing conversation for me, even in just those 30 minutes. And so I'm so excited to be getting some more time with him today and to be able to share it with you all. Welcome, Kevin. Hello. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I was really excited for this conversation just because of all the things that we talked about last time. I think that toxic leadership is something that everybody has experienced it, but oftentimes we don't talk about it. And that's why I was just so excited by your research in general, because it is getting below the surface of our day-to-day experiences. And so I want to get below the surface of who you are and what made you the man that you are today. And so just starting us off with a little icebreaker question. What were you like when you were a kid? I'd love to just get to know what Kevin was like when he was like nine years old. Okay. So Kevin at nine years old knew everything. Kevin at nine years old, like was a storyteller, meaning I would write like a lot of stories and like very, like a very creative outlet, I guess I would say. And I wouldn't stop talking about it in class. Kevin at nine years old was uh, very, very much. Ma- my imagination came up a lot in parent-teacher conferences. And so I really, I, I really, I, I really laugh when I think about it because that, that's something that, that actually followed me luckily as an adult being imaginative and creative and stuff like that. I'm the, I'm, I'm the oldest of six. And so I, I had to take care of my siblings and stuff like that. And so that kind of was a neat experience growing up. I was always reading about like sci-fi and science. I was like really big into science, which I still am today. But yeah, I, I just, I remember being the imaginative kind of story. I used to write, just write a bunch of stories. And I, and to be honest, I say write stories. I used to make up stories in my head to be like thinking about them. And so maybe there were movies. I guess I'll say I was making movies. I don't know. So that was me at nine. I love that. I'm also the oldest of eight brothers. And so I can really relate to just what it is like being that eldest sibling and kind of feeling like you have the responsibility to um, be a good role model for those who come after you. And 
a good role model that you were. I'd love to hear from you just really pave the way not only for your siblings, but also for other people who come from your background to aspire to have to further their education, but beyond that to be an entrepreneur and to be a thought leader. And so I would love to hear from you. What do you feel like instilled that in you from a young age that you still carry with you today? I just remember, you know, I went to a school, we didn't have like school buses. So she drove me to school a lot. And I and she also worked in the office too. So I guess that's a good reason to ride with it. But I remember riding to school with her a lot of days and just talking about education and talking about the importance of like learning and how education was a, a, a key to open a lot of doors and a great equalizer. And so I just remember having that instilled into me about the importance of just always wanting to learn and always being a learner. And so then as an adult, and as I went to get my doctorate and stuff like that, I never do anything for like money. Like I don't do, I don't do anything I do even now for money. I have to eat, my kids have to eat. That's first, but my primary motivation for what I do and how I contribute to the world is literally to contribute to the world. And so I find myself on a mission and I want to create a movement of movements as it relates to toxic leadership, because as you said, it is, you know, not talked about as much, but unfortunately I read about it every night. I get alerts on anything toxic happening all across the world. And I read about it every night and it's heartbreaking that we talk about it. We talk about other things like servant leadership and we talk about transformational leadership, which are all great, but yet what really makes the news and what are really impacting people negatively are, are things we don't talk about enough until it makes the news. So we're very reactive. And so I want to be a part of the movement of change of normalizing the conversation of talking about harm and mitigating harm and doing something about it proactively. I want to dive more into that, but I also want to hear about your journey to PhD, because mm-hmm. I think that this is something that so many people aspire to and want, but especially I, I was a first generation college student. And I think it's difficult to even conceptualize getting the PhD when you haven't seen people from your family or from you know, people who look like you have that. And so I would love to hear from you, like what inspired you? What was the moment that inspired you to get your PhD? And then, I, and then after that, I'd love to talk more about toxic leadership as well. If I, if I were to answer that question, I would have to really back up and talk about a bachelor's degree because that, that took inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Where I grew up from Kansas City, Missouri and in my neighborhoods and things like that, people I hung around, getting a bachelor's degree wasn't like a actual given it wasn't like it wasn't like it wasn't like an automatic thing and it's not an automatic thing for anybody but what i'm trying to say is the bachelor's degree in itself took inspiration because not a lot of people who look like me who grew up where i grew up aspired to get a bachelor's degree or even made it and so that was really important and i have to thank my high school and just teachers in that era for you're forcing us to do FAFSA and all, you know, all that kind of stuff when you're you're in that area. And then master's degree was another one. When I was getting my bachelor's degree, and this actually can relate to grad school in general, when I was getting my bachelor's degree, I remember walking to like lunch or something like that. And I learned what a master's degree was at that time. And I was like, oh, and and I was was probably a junior. And I was thinking like, wow, I could get a master's degree. I could be like a master of something. That was, I remember saying that out loud. I just never knew that. 
And my, my wife and I, or my girlfriend and I at the time, girlfriend at the time, we were walking to lunch right, when I came to that realization. And we were both a part of this program called um, the McNair program through TRIO. And so we were, we're both McNair scholars. And McNair is a program that provides a lot of first generation, typically people of color, opportunity but I want to say it's exposure and access to different grad school, basically, and different degree programs. And we visited colleges and stuff like that. And so that actually made it attainable. That actually made it real because just reading about or seeing other people about it, I always thought, well, that's not me. You know, that that's not for me. And getting my doctorate, I took some time off after I got my master's degree, worked up the corporate ladder, what have you. And getting my doctorate actually became not necessarily easy. I didn't think I belonged there the whole time. I think I was one of the youngest people in the program, as well as one of two Black males. And I felt like a fish out of water a lot, but I, I stuck with it. And it just made me resilient, I guess I could say, by having belief in myself. What really made me pull through, and I guess not what really made me pull through, but a big component of this story is my grandmother actually passed away January 2020. And we found out she had cancer, terminal cancer, the day, like, after I got approved for my dissertation proposal. So it's one of those situations where one is extremely excited and very, like, happy and elated that you passed her proposal. Like, you got, you can start doing the research. And I found out in the airport, coming back home, that she had cancer. And uh, three months later, I think almost to the day, she had passed away. And for me, there wasn't no, there wasn't, there wasn't a scenario where I wasn't going to finish a doctorate. There wasn't a scenario where that it wasn't going to become a reality because as I stated before about my journey of education in the first place and learning in the first place, she was a big part in that. And so through the support of my mother, my wife, my kids, I got it done and did some really cool research and got to meet a lot of great people and am contributing now to the world in a unique way. Yeah. It's interesting how the loss of your grandmother, a lot of people would see that as like a de like a detriment to completing the degree. And it sounds like for you, it gave you that extra fuel almost to push through in, in her name. Yeah. I mean, it, it became one of those things where it wasn't an option not to get, not to complete. And I wasn't, in trouble before or anything like that, but it really, the event itself could have caused me to stop everything because I really wanted to stop everything. Mm -hmm. I wasn't prepared. And, they, and you're never going to be prepared, but it was one of those situations where I got rocked. Yeah. And my coincidentally, not a good coincidence, but my TED talk was actually two or three weeks later after she passed away. And if you watch my TED talk, I, I'm wearing that purple flower. And purple was her favorite color. And so I, I always, like, I wear that purple lapel to take her on stage with me. And so then I transcended purple into my business. That's my business primary color. And it's representative of her legacy and what I do. That's such a beautiful story of resilience and taking a challenge and turning it into meaning and purpose. What do you feel like has created that within you because so many people face challenges and allow those to mean negative things in their life and it sounds like the challenges that you've faced 
you've turned them into something good and created a purpose out of them. What, what does that process look like for you? And why do you feel you became this way? Because I think a lot of people can benefit from that mindset. Uh, it, it, I could answer in a nature versus nurture kind of mm-hmm. way, because I am going to tell you, like, I am born and I see the world in a certain way. But I had to figure out that first and see, okay, this is a gift. I should use it. So I get hyper-focused and it's a gift and a curse. But one of the things that, that I get benefit from related to the hyper-focus is I don't let, I don't, I am just not able to let, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to, I have an extreme resiliency because I don't let, I could like, oh, I don't think I'm gonna do it. I do all the complaining like any normal person, but it won't happen. Uh, I won't let it happen. And it won't be any emotional labor for me not to let it happen because that's just how my brain works. And so I could be stressed for my dissertation. Well, I literally sat at dining room tables on Sundays for 12 hours and not even break a sweat and just do work. That's not normal, but that's just how I operate. If I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. And so I'm, I'm able to juggle a lot of things and keep every, you know, keep a lot of balls in the air or whatever you want to say. But one of the things that I've learned to buffer and to improve upon that is I've also engaged in a very healthy practice of self-care. So my first, so one of the things I'll say is I'm very principled and I'm also very mindful of my energy levels. And so I'm not an extrovert, I'm an introvert. So when I need to back out, I will back out and it could be days. But so my, so one, one of my two lessons learned, I guess I would say is on my methodology is if you have principles, stick stick to your principles and you have to know what your what feeds you from a self-care standpoint and then three i don't it's not i don't take no for an answer i just don't have a belief that i can't do something if i want to do it so like it's like expectancy theory you get what you expect I don't have any expectation that I'm going to fail or it's something that I, you know, that I, that I put my mind to. And so I feel like I have to be my biggest cheerleader and I stick to those kind of three principles, I guess I would say. And that's of a tactical way to explain the resiliency that I've been able to develop personally. That's so beautiful. And all things that I'm working on right now, I'm reading Dare to Lead by Brene Brown and really trying to figure out what are those values that I want to hold on to. It sounds like integrity is a huge one for you. And recently had the opportunity to write a script for Bozema St. John, and she talks about being your number one cheerleader. And so often I feel like I am the lowest on the totem pole of people cheering for me. And I think that just taking on that mindset really can change your life. And so I want to talk a little bit about your passion and your purpose, because it sounds like a lot of this led to you being able to be in a place where you were able to discover your passion and purpose. And so I would love to hear a little bit more about what that is and what made you so passionate about sharing the narrative around toxic leadership. So I'll go, I'll tell a, not a long story, but I'll tell the story in big waves. I wanted to go to school originally for criminal justice and psychology. And I wanted to be, wanted to work with serial killers, be a criminologist or a forensic psychologist. I didn't know at the time, but I knew I wanted to work with aberrant behavior because that always, that just intrigued me. And I guess I'm not alone with that, with the popularity of true crimes, podcasts and stuff like that. So I guess I'm not alone, but I went to school for that originally. 
And for whatever reason, I pivoted off of that mindset because I actually fell in love a lot more with abnormal psychology when I learned about that frame. And so I was looking at abnormal psychology, social psychology, because I really wanted to understand people and help other people understand. And I pivoted and got my, my minor in business before I got my MBA because I saw a lot of a need, I guess I would say, for what I've learned and what I even started doing preliminary research in. I started doing research in influence, but I really um, saw a need to share my learning at such an early age. Now, I didn't have the platform or anything like that at that age. And so I would do, I was a training and development HR person. So I would do training and development for organization. As I grew and as I became an executive coach, I started seeing a need for my platform to widen. And so from 2017 to today, I've been working to do that. And so launching the Toxic Leadership Podcast, uh, which we got new and noteworthy within like the first week. So it's front page of iTunes and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it got really popular really quickly for a real reason. And so me talking to people, I have like my phone number, 34638-TOXIC is the number, but talking to people from India, or Nigeria, or British Columbia, or you name it. it. It was fascinating how we all were saying the same thing about the workplace. We were all saying the same thing about leadership. And again, I consciously made a choice to look at and study and dedicate my study to what's called the dark side of leadership for a specific reason. And that reason is there are so many people who continue to be oppressed in workplaces. There are so many people who are voiceless in workplaces. And if we bounce around and look at everything, where do we spend most of our time? In workplaces. And so I wanna be a person to be a small part of this change because if I'm not doing it, we're gonna keep going down the cycle of news article, hire consultant, look good for a couple of months, go back to what you were, regression, basically, behavioral regression. And so I want to be a part of a movement of real change and documented change. And so my podcast serves as a bridge or a catalyst to meet people and talk to leaders from across the world about this very topic. And then my, my vocation and my work, I do culture change and organizational transformation and evolution through my practice. That is so important. And I, I wonder, in terms of leadership, you talk about the dark side of leadership. And I think about as people, all of us have our, you know, highest self, and then we have our shadow side. And so I wonder, as you started to learn about toxic leadership and toxic traits, were there any parts of you that you felt like you had to unlearn or cleanse? Because I know myself, I've had to clear out some toxic traits. And I think that mm -hmm. when we are honest about the fact that everybody might have some, it allows the conversation to happen. So I just wonder, was there anything within you that as you learned about these things, you had to work to unlearn? Yeah, absolutely. When you get introduced to the DSM from a psychology standpoint, it's like WebMD, but for, you know, psychology. You go in there and you try to <laughs> say, okay, what do I? So when I look at, and I, I read, you know, toxic leadership research as well as as much as I study it, I read it for fun. So I was reading some this morning. I know when I first did my, uh, we did a study on CEO narcissism, and we were looking at, we actually were looking at the pot, we were looking at, we were looking to create a construct called positive narcissist, 
which we did. And it was cool. Some of those traits, I've taken plenty of assessment and some of those traits, I'm like, Ooh, I got some of that. Especially I, I do have what's, I do have self-confidence regardless of circumstance, which is a trait. I do have delusions of grandeur at times. Definitely. Sure. But one of the things I had to unlearn with a lot of that is a don't diagnose yourself with anything. So I had somebody, I had professional tell me I'm not, but B, I've also had to learn what is my underlying motivation. And one of the things that I've learned is I remember talking to somebody and they thought I wanted that they were, they made a comment like, oh, you should, you, you should take this photo. You want to be a center of attention. And I was like, wait, no, I don't. I actually don't. I didn't, didn't, I don't care about this attention. And so one of the things I had to unlearn that were real were like, truly, if I have confidence in something, especially as a leader, that doesn't mean I should answer the question. That doesn't mean I should be the first person first to say something or speak. I had to make it a practice continually to make space for other people. And that was one thing um, I learned as a leader. So that included delegation. That included, even if I knew the answer, I'm going to wait for someone to come up with the answer on their own. And I'm not, it's not like a torture or anything like that, but I knew to, in order for others to grow, who, who followed me or who worked with me, I couldn't, I had to get out of the way, I guess I would say, because though I wasn't seeking the spotlight naturally followed me. And so for, in order for me not to take up too much space, I learned to put other people's needs first. And so that's a practice that I take as it relates to how I do executive coaching. That is a practice how I take when I work with community. That's a practice that I take when I work with organizations. That's so interesting because I think that many people struggle with the idea that they shouldn't be taking up space. And so hum- and, and so it's interesting how there's a balance. There's a balance with everything. There's a balance with stepping into your light, stepping into your power, but also not overpowering or, or not becoming narcissistic. And so I wonder for you, I wonder in, in your research, what have you found to be some of the traits that commonly are out of balance? And what does that look like? Because is there a continuum? Is somebody toxic and some people are not toxic? Or how does that work? No, so even the, the narcissism study, we actually framed it as a continuum. Yep. And toxicity is not a switch or a dichotomy or anything like that. These behaviors are actually all the behaviors that I talk about on my podcast or any research that I've ever done. There are things we all possess. It's just sometimes things get more aberrant and more destructive, I guess I would say. And so when we talk about taking up space and people needing to take up space, especially those who have historically been oppressed, marginalized, or what have you, very important. But the balance and the tightrope is we don't want to take up space to marginalize other people. We don't want to take up space to harm other people. And so there, there, are, there are certain, it's a balance. It's a balance of things. And there are like levels to it, I guess I would say. And so, yeah, um, on my show, I don't describe or contextualize toxic leadership as toxic person. It's more so these are just toxic behavioral traits. And if left unchecked, many behavior tra- traits that could be potentially positive can harm. And one is there are a lot, the way it looks like is a lot of managers are managers and they manage the work. Some managers are micromanagers and they go too far in managing the work. Now, 
they probably do that based on a fact of maybe that's their maybe that is their innate predisposition but secondarily that could be because they weren't minding the work before and, and something fell through the cracks you know what i mean and so they had to micromanage to mitigate that discomfort or what have you there could be somebody who is you can name any trait like you could name there there could be somebody who is super what's the word i'm looking for supportive of folks but he or she is so supportive or they are so supportive that they don't let people swim on their own. They're always a life raft for somebody. And we have to be mindful of the beauty. I love the fact of even though things might look good on the surface, they may be toxic if we overdo it, even the good things. And that's why toxicity can be explicit or implicit over or covert. So we have to be mindful of that. And so that's why I, I stress to all leaders to just look at all your behaviors because you never know how they may be showing up or impacting folks, especially if those folks are maybe not like you. And so it's always good to do an analysis of how I lead and, and take a look at that and ask these questions to those who work with you. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think oftentimes some of the most toxic leaders that I've worked with, they're people pleasers and they want to make you happy. And so they don't give you any feedback. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, Precisely. <laughs> why am I in this performance review? And so I, I think that's a really interesting point is that oftentimes it's very well intended, but maybe not leads to good outcomes for people. And so yeah. being that this landscape is very um, complex and it's not black and white or straight, very straightforward. How as leaders, do you have any tools that leaders can use in order to navigate this in a way that helps them stay within the balance of being a impactful and meaningful strategic leader that has positive impacts on their people? Yeah, complex problems don't necessarily require complex solutions. and. So with that being said, one of my biggest tools or tips that I, I would give out to leaders is we have to practice something called level three listening. And what level three listening is, it's going beyond active listening. And it's more trying to be more empathetic in how you listen and really trying to be fully present with the person. And so I'm not a naturally empathetic person, just the way my brain is wired, but I'll give you, any, I'll give you how I do it. So Level one listening is more so like just regular talking and you're talking to respond. You're really, I mean, sorry, you're listening to respond. That's really the only reason you're listening. Level two listening is where I um, tell people to imagine a wire from your head to the other person's head and you're hearing everything they say and you're understanding everything they say. Level three listening is I tell you to imagine a bubble surrounding the two of you or whomever you're talking to. And now you're not only hearing them, feeling what they're saying, but you're also experiencing it and you're deeper in it. You're in it with them. And so that's like a mental, a mental trick that I have people do when they're practicing level three listening. But I think that's really important because as we talk about one of the things with toxicity, and you'll see this in the research is toxicity in itself is not universally felt. So there could be gender differences on how somebody feels somebody's behavior. And so if you look on the news and we see like, sexual harassment and stuff like that that occur, and there are environments where plenty of men probably didn't, you know, I've spoken to people, they, I didn't know. 
But then the women were like, oh, that's a problem. This is an issue. This is toxic. But until it was brought in, and I've speaking, spoken to plenty of people who had this experience, well, it ha- we have to be at, we have to get to a point where we're able to hear people where they come from. We have to be able to hear people for where they come from because we're, we get too polarized when we experience difference. When in reality, that polarization is literally the opposite of belonging that we all talk about, that we all seek. And so for me, level three listening is one of the first steps of gaining and bridging the gap to get to belonging and to counteract a lot of toxicity that may occur, whether you're looking at Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, what have you, level three listening is a tool that I always reference. And that's like a a low hanging fruit. I don't want to use a lot of jargon, but that's like a thing that I'd recommend to start first because it's something we all can do with no financial investment. It just takes a lot of practice. So I'm I'm gonna give I'm gonna give an example to relate. He stay with me. Recently, a friend texted me and was like, "Hey, Elizabeth, got a question. I keep getting different answers. Do I kiss a girl on a first date, or do I not? I can't tell because some girls want me to and some girls don't." And my response was, "It's different every first date. You have to <laughs> like you have to feel it out. It's every girl is different. Every date is different. The chemistry could be different." And I think that's what you're saying about leadership is that it's different with every person that you're leading. And this level three leadership allows you to have the presence to be aware of what's the vibe here. Should I kiss on the first date? You should not kiss the people that you're leading. It's similar (laughs) in the sense of like, how do I respond in this situation? It takes mindfulness. It takes presence. And that completely makes sense. It's the nuances of the world that we're only keenly aware to when we're mindful and when we're conscious and when we're present. And to get to that, we talked about belonging. You want to get to belonging. You also want to treat people equitably. And so what that means is I can't lead the same way for every one person. I can have certain leadership characteristics about myself or what have you, but I don't even talk about leadership styles because I hate styles. I don't like that. I don't like what that projects. And so I talk about leading more equitably, which some would call in a research situational leadership, but really you're doing level three listening to, to see how this person ticks, to see what's not working for them. Because guess what? You're going to build that the best game plan for that person. And then you're going to build a guest game, the best game plan for the other person and so on and so forth. And there may be some, there may be some commonalities between your approach between people. And I know this takes a lot of time to people who are listening, but if people are our greatest asset, quote, quote, because everybody says that crap, let's treat them as such. Let's spend the time to prove that people are our greatest asset. That's so powerful. And I feel like I have that moment. Every time I get a new manager, I always have that moment where I finally just break down and I'm like, you need to get me because you don't get me. And this is why we keep having friction. You haven't taken the time to get to know me. And I think that all of us, there's this person that we present and then there's our true selves. And it takes a time, it takes time to get to know somebody's true self, especially if they don't feel safe to express that in the workplace. Yeah, and I talk about that very concept in my TED Talk. It's called the masks we wear in the workplace masquerade. 
And if you're, if you're a nerd like me, go to Google Scholar and type that in. You could actually read my dissertation called The Mask We Wear in the Workplace Mask. But that's exactly right. We spend a lot of time wearing these metaphorical masks until we know it's safe. Organizations are not going to get our best selves if we are not our true selves. And so I always tell people that in order for somebody else to get you, you have to get you. Because if, imagine if you had that discourse and you were able to articulate, well, this is, these are my needs and this is why, that actually makes it a lot easier for that leader to be in that bubble with you. And so I always tell people that a journey of self-reflection is a lifelong thing, but it's a daily practice. So we should always take a look in that mirror and see that mask we're wearing and truly ask ourselves why, but also truly ask ourselves, what will it take for us to show up the way we need to show up? You're hitting on a realization that I've had recently that I'm honestly working through. I grew up, both my parents struggled with addiction. And so my whole life I was like, I'm broken. And so I just looked at people who were well-adjusted and tried to present just like them. And that was my mask. And just recently, I made a, a purchase that I feel like is helping me more embrace it. And it's interesting, even it's just like the way we dress. And I bought mm-hmm. like a gold nameplate that has my nickname from when I was a kid. And it's the type of necklace that some of my cousins would wear on my mom's side of the family, which is my Mexican side of the family. And I never felt comfortable even expressing that side of myself because I walk around with white privilege and my dad is white. But I grew up with my mom's family. And I think that a lot of people have many different identities and intersectionality within themselves, but we just present whatever seems the most safe. And it's not helpful for other people because there are rooms that I'm able to be in that maybe some of my cousins wouldn't be able to be in simply because of how I look. And uh, lately I've been trying to gain that self-awareness in order to take off some of my masks. So I am so excited to, I will read your dissertation because I'm a nerd too, (laughs) but I would love to just hear from you. How can people engage with you further? Because if people like me are listening, they're probably just obsessed with you as I am. So how can they follow you? How can they engage with you? And perhaps even how could they hire you as a coach or a consultant for their company? Yeah. So the most, the fastest way to reach me is LinkedIn, but I have various other ways to reach me. Um, By phone, I could be reached at 346-38-TOXIC. By web, you can leave me a a voicemail at askdrkev.com. My business sites are toxicleadershippodcast.com or kevraconsulting.com. And so a variety of ways to reach me. I'm available on, follow me on Instagram, follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and I'll be there. Whoever needed a toxic leadership show or toxic leadership podcast, they should show up. But my, you can find me at like at toxic leadership podcast. Yes, sir. What is your handle on all of those different social media platforms? Yeah, so typically if you type in and at Dr. Sansbury. I love it. And any closing words for people out there who are, maybe they are a leader in an organization or just even a leader in their family and they're looking to gain more balance. What would you say to them? 
I would say understand that normal doesn't exist and understand that your perceived imperfections are exactly what makes you human. They're exactly what makes you belong on this earth. And you decide what you want to fix. You decide. Don't let society decide that. Don't let any other person decide that. You decide. It has to be for you. That is so important, especially even just for the audience here on this show, because it's all about escaping patterns, embracing your passion to elevate your potential. The patterns that you want to escape, they have to be true to you. Hey, yeah, I want to grow beyond this. But maybe the way that I love with passion and intensity, maybe that's something that you want to keep. And Yep. I love what you say about there is no normal. I, I felt like a hug. I felt like you were talking to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope some of the other listeners feel that way as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful for you, for your time, and for the narrative that you're putting out there into the world, because I'm sure that it is impacting so many lives just as much as it has impacted mine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. As always, any books, links, or resources that were mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes for you to access. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. Or feel free to send us a direct message on Instagram at Elevate Potential Podcast if you would like to be a guest on this show. Finally, please subscribe and download episodes in order to support the community that we are creating of people who are working to elevate their potential together. Until next time.